Here in James, as we have been kind of marching through, we are beginning to make a turn. And I warned you that we were going to start to pick up the pace as we went through this, that James 1, we would spend more time than anything else because it lays the foundation for everything that he is talking about in the rest of this letter. So this is the turn portion where it's going from, now that you know what your foundation is, what do you do with it? I mean, once again, what's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Knowledge is knowing a bunch of stuff. Wisdom is knowing what to do with it. I I would love for you to have limitless knowledge in Christian living. I will trade all of your knowledge for an ounce of Christian wisdom because you're better off. You are absolutely better off. So again, don't accumulate knowledge just for the sake of, again, saying, I can one day win the great game of trivial Bible pursuit. That's not the goal. I want you to walk faithfully and deal with this. So what does that look like? James is realizing that that is going to be your question. So he's going to begin to, quote unquote, put flesh on your Christian walk. And that's what this section is beginning to do. Now, warning for the morning. I always like saying that because it rhymes and I'm so terrible at rhyming things. So when you give me an easy one, I take it. I pick on History Channel, National Geographic Channel, theology all the time, for good reason. It's, it's worth picking on. But there is a large, large movement in the, I guess the best way to phrase this would be faithless Christianity. So there's, like, there's the people like me who, would try, who are going to try to explain to you the Bible from the perspective of actually believing it. And then there's the other side where it's people are trying to explain the Bible to you, but they don't, it's an academic exercise purely. There's, there's no power or faith behind any of it. Does that mean, make sense, the two sides? Their side loves to pit James against everybody else. Because, look, let's, let's be honest. If you read Paul, you will go home feeling like, The grace and mercy of God has been poured out on you, if you've understood what he's saying. Paul does an excellent job of explaining the grace of God, the inability of people, and how God accomplishes salvation. James doesn't walk such a fine road. James looks at you and goes, yeah, we already know all that stuff, therefore... Well, if you skip everything that I just said before the therefore, you're going to read James and go, well, there's this James guy over here, and there's this Paul guy over there. That's going to start to begin in this section. If you get this wrong, if you ignore the context, if you ignore the totality of the teaching, in other words, you pick James up and read him like the rest of the New Testament doesn't exist, you're going to have major problems. Remember our first rule for Bible reading. What do we never, ever do? Never ever read one verse, and if you have for a second a question about what you're reading, what do we do? You read it again, and after we've done that, we do what? And after we've done that, we do what? There we go. And then we've read it again and read it again and read it again, and we still don't understand it. Now what? Read what's before. Read what's after. Read the book before. Read the book after. Understand where you are on our two timelines. I haven't done this in a while. Remember, we have two timelines. We have the timeline on the ground, which is my little pointer dude here, right? This is, you know, Moses and Jacob and Jesus and Daniel, real people living in real places, doing real things, right? And then we have the work that God is doing, interjecting into that work, accomplishing his purposes. We want to make sure we understand how what's going on in this timeline is affected in interacting with what's going on on this timeline. So if you ever wonder, do that work and make sense of this. Sound good? That's what we're going to try to do this morning and make sense of this as we go. So you ready to dive in? 
All right, James 1, verse 19. <laughs> this you know, my beloved brethren. Stop. I know I do this to you guys every week, but stop. This is very important. This you know. Is this new information? Who is James writing to? Okay, re remember why I told you this was important, why we spent an entire Sunday to do this. Who is James? Half-brother of Christ, redeemed of God, leader of the Jerusalem church, faithful unto death. That's, again, the picture on the front of your bulletin. I have purposely not changed. I have not just gotten lazy and forgotten. I have purposely not changed the picture on your bulletin each week because I want that to be a reminder for you. That is an artistic rendering. I don't know who drew it. I don't care. That is, but that painting is literally called the Martyrdom of James. They took him when he was preaching in the temple, on the temple courtyard, and they threw him off the side of it. That's kind of a big deal. When he did not die, but merely broke his legs, you know, turned into the Black Knight from Monty Python, tis but a flesh wound, they stoned him to death, okay? Faithful unto death. He is talking to who? The 12 tribes scattered abroad. Who are they? Faithful Israel. He is talking to believers, people who have been changed by the gospel, changed by the work of God, renewed by the Holy Spirit, and sent to work in a world that just loves them to pieces, right? No, a world that is actively killing them. This is a letter, first, first book of the New Testament written down, somewhere between 44 and 48 AD, written in response to the events of Acts chapter 12, where James, the brother of John, is beheaded. By Herod, okay? He is writing to a church that is trying to be faithful, trying to live out its faith in a world that despises them. You know anybody that lives like that? Know anybody might be in a world like that? <laughs> yeah, welcome to why it's still in your New Testament. So keep that in mind because this you know, not new information. Ephesians 2, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In other words, James isn't coming along and going, hey, you guys know nothing about anything. Let me fill you in. No, he's coming to Christians who know who Christ is, know what he has done for them, and are now, because they are changed and empowered by the Holy Spirit, seeking to live a different life in this world. And he is telling them how to do it. And not just, all right, guys, you know, do better and work this out, but actual, honest-to-goodness instruction. Why I, talk to, why I say putting flesh on it. That's what's going on. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Let's just summarize this really easy. The faithful follower of God should be a person of patience. And you're all going, because what happens every time you pray for patience? <laughs> see, how do, you, how do you get better? I, see, I used to coach, so. How did I make my infielders better at fielding ground balls? I hit them ground balls. How did we make our outfielders better at tracking fly balls? We hit them fly balls. They used to laugh at me because the first two weeks of baseball practice every year was literally just a week of the outfield run out there and go, go shag fly balls. Just go shag fly balls. What are we doing? Well, you're getting in shape, and this is what you're going to do the rest of the year in a game, so go do it. Because you get better at it by actually practicing the thing you're going to do. Christian, what is patience? 
It's not strangling that person at Walmart, right? It's not ramming into the car in front of you that just cut you off. It's not reacting in anger and violence to the things that drive you absolutely crazy. Now stop. How do you practice that? (laughs) You have to get annoyed by everything in life, right? This is why you never pray for patience, because the way God builds your patience is gives you opportunities to demonstrate your patience. So I joke with you and tell you, never pray for patience. But you know what you should do on a regular basis? You should pray for patience. Why? Because it's good for you. Why is it good for you? Because it is a demonstration of a renewed and changed heart. It is how you live in this world. And this is part of your totality of Scripture. Um, This is wisdom literature. Proverbs 17. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. This uh, This is recorded for the Israelites in their law. Deuteronomy 19. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed, but on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Why don't we just go round up a posse because somebody goes, he hit me. You don't have any bruises. Yeah, but he hit me. You're not even a mark on your face, but he hit me. Where did he hit you? Over here. Why can't we take that word? We don't have a second. We we can't confirm anything. Your word against their word. What good is this? And look, I know what you're saying. I hate that. Because you know who else hates that? I hate that. But Christian, why can we be slow to uh, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger? Because I don't have to have justice today. I don't have to have justice tomorrow. I don't have to have justice a hundred years from now. Because you know where I will always have justice. In eternity in God's kingdom. I can practice patience and trust because it is God who works out all things. That no deed done in darkness will stay there, but all will be exposed to the light. I can have patience and be slow and and calm and easygoing in this world because I know there is a lion from the tribe of Judah who will deal with how much of sin? All of it. That's why this is a mark of Christian character. Paul got this, Ephesians 4. We are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Peter understood this. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. In other words, your first step in putting flesh on your faith, your first step towards living joyously in a world that hates you for having wisdom in the world is to actually Trust God in the world. Because when we get angry, when we are lashing out, when we are no longer patient, what we're really saying is, who needs to be appeased? Me. I do. You have wronged me. How dare you? Well, what makes you so special? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. Christian, in your sin, what did you deserve? Death. Death. Being cut off in traffic isn't so bad now, is it? (laughs) Yes, I went there. Perspective matters, doesn't it? Your children embarrassing you isn't such a big deal anymore, is it? Those aches and pains of getting older aren't as important as they used to be. 
is it? See, life changes when perspective changes. We've talked about this before, but if my car is a excuse me, if my car is an annoyance to me and it's forever breaking down and I can't wait to get a new one, well, what do I think about that car? Sorry, Vern, I know I'm, I know, <laughs> I know, you just lost one this week. But what is, how do I feel about that vehicle? It annoys me, it bothers me, I'm aggravated, I'm constantly looking forward to the next great thing. But if that car, well, yeah, it breaks down more often than I would like, but it got me to work, got me home, got my kids to school, and I can fix it, and I can keep it moving, and I can do, now what is that car? Yeah, it's Ferns, right? <laughs> now, What's changed between that vehicle and the two situations? Absolutely, positively nothing. What's different? Me. How I think about it. One is a provision and a gift from God. One is an aggravation and the bane of my existence. See, in other words, life changes when I change. See, patience is a Christian character. Calm, deliberateness is a Christian character because it is wisdom in action. He hit me. Oh, yeah? That's not wise. That's mob justice, which is an oxymoron because mob justice is never justice. It's simply violence in action. Now, why do I care? Because Christian, to fail to be wise is to fail to trust in God. This is what James was talking about back in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Why does God give wisdom to all who ask generously and without reproach? Because wisdom is what is required for you to be sanctified, and God's desire for his children is that they be sanctified. Now, the second thing is a failure to do that, a failure to ask for wisdom, a failure to walk in wisdom is a failure to follow after who? Christ. It is a failure to walk in his ways and the acceptance of the ways of this world. May it never be for the people of God. This is the distinction that is being drawn. This is why when church looks like the world, church has already been defeated. This is why when Christians look like the world, Christians have already been defeated. Because we have surrendered the very ground we stand on. Christian, that's the difference between the solid rock and the sinking sand. You cannot live in a world in which you look like the pagan because that is the broad road that leads to destruction. That is the following after the things of this earth. That is the storing of treasures where moth and rust destroy. Pick your analogy or example that Christ provides, and it is every single one of them. James does not want that for his people because God does not want that for his people, and God wants for the Christians what... I'm sorry, and James wants for the Christians what... God wants for them. So, he continues. Why is this a problem? For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Duh. (laughs) And I mean that as a highly technical term. We know that, right? You and your, because let's be honest, how how many of you have ever done this? Confession time. No, we're not Catholic, but it's okay. Um, How many of you have tried to lie to yourselves and tell you, I'm not angry, I have righteous indignation? See, you're everyone who just chuckled a little bit, guilty, guilty, guilty. I have every reason to be angry. Okay. You don't have to convince me. 
And you don't. You don't have to convince me. This is why I joke with you guys all the time, said, I'm not going to judge you out loud. Because you know what? It doesn't matter if I judge you silently or out loud who you're going to have to stand before one day. God, I don't care if you stand before me. I'm a broken, dirty, rotten sinner, just like you. You don't have to stand before me. You have to stand with a clear conscience before God. My goal is to get you closer to that standing, to get you to that good place. Now, I say this is a dub because who runs this place? Who is the just judge of all the earth? God. Therefore, he will accomplish. He tells you this in Deuteronomy 32. Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine in retribution. In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near. The impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. In other words, Christian, you have to play the long game. You have to pay attention to the eternal kingdom that is to come, not looking to the things that are now. And here's why this is an important reminder. Good, well-meaning, Bible-reading, spirit-empowered Christians get this wrong all the time. If you want to have some fun, I always like giving you homework during the week, right? So I've got some more homework for you. Go read Psalms. You got some time, right? cheat, do a Google search and help yourself out and find the imprecatory psalms and weep because it's the messages of people believing in God and trusting in him, crying out for deliverance from God and they're angry and they're hurt and they're upset. I mean things like bash their heads against a rock, O Lord. That's in your Bible. That's part of the imprecatory psalms. Why? Because they're wicked and they're evil and they're killing your people. Lord, deal with them according to their sin. Why are those psalms there, though? They are there because those people are trusting in who? God. They're trusting in his kingdom to come, not their own. They're not taking vengeance. They're doing what? Lord, deal with the enemies of your people. Conquer them as you have conquered sin. Destroy them as you have destroyed iniquity because that is the work that you do. That is the work that we are trusting in you to do. And then you will also, after you've read a few imprecatory psalms, have a few things to maybe if you want to mail to Congress or something like that or your local representative. I didn't tell you to do that. I'm just, you know. <laughs> you laugh. Um, there was a um, good old Wiley. Uh, if you go to the, if you well, he hadn't been there in several years. I don't know if he's died or not, but at the Southern Baptist Convention, there was a guy who always made sure he was the first one at the microphone because the Southern Baptist Convention is really the world's largest business meeting. It's eight to 10 plus thousand Baptists gathered together for a business meeting. What could possibly go wrong? Um, <clears throat> there's a guy who, I, it's somewhere in California, and I, I can't remember the name of his church, but his name is Wiley Drake, and he is the pastor of the first Southern Baptist Church in whatever town he's in California. Because that's how he announces himself every year. Because when you go to make a motion or speak at a microphone, you have to say who you are, what church you're from. And, and good old Wiley had a radio program in California. He got himself in trouble because he started praying imprecatory psalms a few years ago against the president. <laughs> Secret Service showed up to ask him questions. He's like, I'm literally just reading the Bible. <laughs> that's the level of calling out to God those psalms engage in those, that the Secret Service heard that and was like, um, is he threatening the president? <laughs> and the answer is no, he's not, but he's threatening him with God, which is probably worse, but it might actually be good for you because, again, the breakdown that we have is we want justice, we want righteousness, 
now, and we are tempted to get it by what means? Any. And here's the problem, Christian. Do the ends ever justify the means? No. Let me help you out before somebody gets that wrong. No. The ends never justify the means, which is why I've always told you I don't care what you do, I care why you do it. Because if you get the why you do it correctly, the what will take care of itself. I don't have to worry. See, how many of you consciously grabbed your kids, brought them to the store, and said, all right, don't steal anything? Like, was that what you did when they were two? No. You waited for them to pick up something you weren't going to buy and go, no, 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 everything in the store belongs to the store, and if we're going to take it home, we have to pay for it, and we're not paying for that. What are you teaching? You're teaching the why and the how of living in the world, that things belong to people in order for goods to exchange hands. You know, some sort of exchange must take place. You didn't go, no, don't steal that, you rotten little child. Get in the car. If you did that, repent and apologize to your children, please, for me, if nothing else. So in other words, you taught them the why of the world, the how it works. The what gets taken care of when the why is in place. Scripture works the same way. So, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, verse 21. Therefore, see, you got to make sure you understand all that. Putting aside all filthiness... And all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. This requires a full stop. This is why you can't play the game of James versus Paul versus anybody else. Because everything James is telling you is based on what? The assumption that you are a redeemed gospel people walking in sanctification. You have been redeemed and are now being purified. This is, a, this is a punchline right here. Putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, do what? Receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. This has been the heart of everything. Go all the way back to Mark 1. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. And what's the good news? That God is redeeming sinners, as Paul put it, amongst who he is the worst. And by the way, Christian, this has always, always, always been the message. Ezekiel 18. If the wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live and he shall not die. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness which he has practiced. He will live. We're going to come back to that in just a second. Psalm 51, great punchline for all of this. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your spirit away from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Excuse me. Then I will teach your transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do you catch the... The thens in that. Save me, then I'll teach. Redeem me, rescue me, 
then I will proclaim. Open my mouth, then I'll sing. In other words, who am I apart from God? (laughs) And again, that's always a technical category. More than a little bit sketchy. It is God who changes the hearts and minds of men. It is God who redeems people. It is God who uplifts them. Then, they then react in sanctified ways. They then react to the world in calm, patient ways. Why? Because they have been changed. Again, James is assuming salvation in moving forward because he's writing to the church. And the assumption is that the church is made up of what kind of people? Christians, because that's who's supposed to be in there. That's who's gathered together. We don't kick a bunch of people out, but at the same token, you're not coming back week after week if the Holy Spirit's not going, hey, you might want to go to church this week. might be good for you. Now, keep in mind what this actually means. This means that the gospel message and the fruits of the gospel are not merely salvific in nature. Okay? Since I started, and it was important, I want to say this again. The gospel and the fruits of the gospel are not merely salvific in nature. It is not this one-time thing, you know, you go tripping down the aisle and you make a profession and we dunk you in the water, hold you under if you're really bad until the bubbles stop, and then pull you back up and be like, all right, good job. You're good. Nobody need to come back. No need to worry about this any longer. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Uh, Martin Luther nails this really well in his 95 Theses. When God speaks of repentance, he means that all of the Christian life is a life of repentance. The gospel message and the fruits of the gospel are not just the initiatory thing. They are the continued empowerment of the Christian. This is why I remind you of our good caveman theology, right? Uh Uh-uh, me bad, him good. I need that how many days? All of the ones that end in Y, okay? I need that each and every day because when I forget that, whose power do I start trying to walk in? Mine. Okay. If God in his working is wisdom, then, and apart from the knowledge of God, there is no wisdom, then me walking in my own understanding and my own ideas would be what? It'd be foolishness, the opposite of wisdom. How would you describe such an action? What word might you ascribe to that? The person continually doing foolish things. You would say that was really... See, I have a more favorite word. That was really dumb. And what's the rule? Don't do dumb things. That's always the rule. That rule is always in effect. Cameron almost wore that sweatshirt today. <laughs> Wasn't quite as baggy as the one she has on, so trying not to press on her stomach. But yeah, that's, that rule is always in effect. Don't do dumb things. Walking in the ways of the world is walking the opposite of wisdom. By definition, it is walking in the ways that are. There you go. Which means Christian. Your empowerment in the Christian life is connected to your understanding of who God is, what he has done, and why you then are able to stand and walk. So keep that in mind. We're going to come back to it. Because you need all of that so that you don't get yourself twisted into a knot for verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word. See, you can't just say, I believe this and not actually do it. That's what that Ezekiel passage I was just reading was all about. So let me go back and read that again. It'll be good for us. If the wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. He shall not die. 
All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him. Because of his righteousness which he has practiced, he will live. Now, I would like you to go out. Second homework assignment for the week. So first assignment is what? Imprecatory Psalms. Second homework assignment. Go find yourself a lovely pagan in the world, you know, a nice one that doesn't throw things at you, and demand and tell them they need to do good things only the rest of their days. (laughs) That's the reaction right there. That is the appropriate reaction. Because what's going to happen? They're going to throw things at you. (laughs) They're going to fail miserably. Why? Because they can't. So Ezekiel is saying, hey, you repent of your sin and do justice and righteousness all the days of your life and you'll live. Well, first of all, why would the person even care to attempt to do justice and righteousness all the days of their life? Because something has to have changed inside of them. Again, it's an assumption of the gospel work. Secondly, are they going to even with that changed heart and renewed mind? No! How many of you have fallen short like this week? Keep in mind that this week is not 12 hours old, okay? <laughs> that, one, that doesn't count. It's cheating. I mean, this week is not 12 hours old. How many of you have already messed up on your perfection scale? Exactly. Exactly. Which means you can't live unless your righteousness is from somewhere other than you. Welcome to the alien righteousness that Christ presents. This is what James is assuming is the reality of your life. And that's why he's telling you to prove yourselves doers of the word. Because you can't say, Christ's righteousness is why I can stand before the throne. Therefore, I can do whatever I want. See, I haven't had a skip today. You needed a skip. You needed a good in line. No, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Again, why? Let's say you're drowning. And someone pulls you out of the water, brings you over to the shore, you know, does the whole breathing thing, gets all that lovely, disgusting water you're not supposed to have in your lungs, out of your lungs. You sit you up, you start coughing, you hacking, you're very thankful, and they go, look, man, there's no day to be swimming. There's rip currents everywhere. It's miserable. Nobody should be swimming out there. And you're like, you know what? You're right. And then you get up and go swimming again. See, you're shaking your head because that person is now what? That's, yeah, that, that's dumb. We, you don't do dumb things, right? But it's not just dumb in regards to them. What else are you doing? Do you care about the person who just pulled you out of the water? No, because your answer is, no, I'm good, I got this. I can, t- I can take care of this. Yes, I needed you to rescue me and make sure I didn't die, but I-, I got this from here on in. Now let's say it happens again. Same person. Comes swimming out there, grabs you, pulls you back in. This time they barely make it. Dude, what did I just say? It's not a good day to be swimming. You're right, you're not. <laughs> All right, I gotta go for a swim. I need some exercise. Mm. Do you value your life? Do you value the advice you've been given about the water? Do you value the people who are coming to rescue you? No, you don't care. Christian, you don't get to look at Jesus and go, I'm thankful for all that you have done, for cleaning up the wickedness of my sin, for bearing the penalty of sin upon the cross. You know what I would like to do now? I would like to indulge in all those things you died for. That doesn't make any sense. Again, what's the difference between the solid ground and the shifting sand. My favorite section about that is Luke 6, because this is the lead into it. Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? <laughs> that one kind of hurts right there, doesn't it? Because it's like, you know, you got that's a pretty good question, because that's the folly. Now again, if at any point am I assuming you shall be perfect? No. We are talking about the difference between 
committing sin, falling into sin, and practicing sin. Oh, okay, there's a supervisor. <laughs> I just saw Cameron walking, and that's why I kind of stopped for a second, but, but Becca's walking with her, so <laughs> making me nervous. Um, the difference between falling into sin and practicing sin. The New Testament looks at the person practicing sin, reveling in it, walking willingly into it constantly over and over again, and goes, that person has not been changed. The New Testament looks at the person who has fallen into sin and saying, and says, for that too, Christ has died. For this, Christ is redeemed. You have been lifted up because God is at work. Now, do what? Continue to work, continue to war, continue to fight. This is what the early church understood, 1 John 2. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now again, that's 1 John 2. What, by definition, must come before 1 John 2? 1 John 1. So before that verse in 1 John 2, there's this verse in 1 John 1. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Well, didn't you just tell me not to practice my sin? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you're working. It means you're fighting. It means you are trying to overcome what Christ has died for. You are trusting in God's grace, in his mercy, and you are walking in light of it. In other words, you were in the dark, and now a light has shined. You know what I don't want to do anymore? Go be in the dark. That's what the New Testament, that's what James is trying to tell you. Look, there's the light shining. It leads to a path that leads to life. Where would you like to go? I would like to follow that path. And you know what you should do? You should walk where the light is. And when you find yourself walking where the light isn't, you know what you should do? Turn into a moth and go back to the flame and go back to where the light actually is. Yeah, there you go. As we used to, as we used to tell our substitute teacher, go to the light, go to the light. That sounds really bad if you don't have the first part of that story, doesn't it? We, I mentioned this in Sunday school. I had a substitute teacher in high school. Anytime we would talk in class when we weren't supposed to, she would sit there and go, I'm hearing voices. <laughs> we couldn't take it anymore. So we'd be, what do they say? And then one of my friends, every time she would say it, he would sit in the corner and go, go to the light, go to the light. <laughs> He's also a pastor today, by the way. <laughs> That's... Might say something about my high school class, huh? <laughs> there you go. So, this matters. Again, the gospel message and its fruit are not merely salvific in nature, meaning they are a constant reminder of who you are and why you are. Why am I here? I'm here because of the work that God has accomplished. How do I get to where I want to go? By following faithfully the work that God has accomplished. What do I do when I realize I have gotten off the path? Don't ask me where that Las Vegas lounge voice just came from. 
find that light switch and get yourself back onto the path, which means, again, when God speaks about repentance, he means all of Christian life to be a life of repentance. It's constant every single day. This has been the reminder of the last, uh, the last few weeks. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Because it's a reminder that I am sinful and broken, but he is gracious and merciful and good. Therefore, I can stand. Therefore, I overcome. Not because of me, but because he has overcome. So, as way of example, in case you don't like any of my bad stories, James has one for himself. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. See, that's ridiculous, isn't it? It's like looking in the mirror and going, I am six foot four. Yes. No, I'm not, but I don't remember that because I don't, oh, there, that's right, I'm not six foot four, okay. Am I six four? No. No, no, I'm not, okay. (laughs) See, that's silly and it's stupid. Why? Because you've just seen and you know who you are and you know what you are. Christian, in Christ, none of that changes. If anything, it is strengthened. Because apart from Christ, you know who and what you are. This is what Romans 1 is talking about. The attributes of God have been clearly seen and have been rejected. They are without excuse. In Christ, you know who and what you are. But you also know who and what God is. And what he has done. Which is why Romans 2 reminds you that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. See, the reason that matters so much is because in Romans 1... You see the brokenness of humanity, and you see the rebellion of people against God. It's not just, oops, our bad. It's an active, we hate you. It's my joke about the angry atheists. What, is the two, what are the two things that every angry atheist knows without a shadow of a doubt? God doesn't exist, and I hate him. But, that, but that's, that's the world. Welcome to it. Because we do know, but we like to lie to ourselves. That's the rundown. Now, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. That's how that section kicks off. In other words, when you recognize that all are under sin and that judgment abides upon sin, then who's under judgment? Yeah, all. And then you remember that there's a savior, that there is a redemption, that there is a penalty paid, the price covered, and you see that that is the work of a gracious and merciful God. It is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. It's the difference between the Israelites at the bottom of the mountain going, I'm not going up there, and Moses having no fear, knowing who awaits him when he ascends. That's the difference. All that is promised, the promises from Ezekiel about making the dry bones turn to life, the promises from Jeremiah about the new covenant written upon the hearts of the people, all of those things in Christ have been delivered. 1 John 4, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. See, that spirit is meant to do what, Christian? It's meant to encourage you to walk in the way that James is telling you to walk. It is meant to encourage you to be sanctified. We are writing and talking about a people who have been transformed by the gospel, and therefore are being transformed by the gospel. Always remember our categories. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. So by the work of Christ, you have been saved. Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and declares you not guilty. You have been saved. You are being cleansed, pruned, refined, purified. Pick your example, chiseled, whatever you want. 
You are being saved. You are walking in sanctification, putting to death sin in the flesh, walking in godliness, performing the good works that he has prepared beforehand. You are being saved, and you will be saved in that eternal kingdom where all of this work will come together, and your hopes will be revealed, and God's work will be completed, and what he has declared upon the cross that it is finished will be actualized in your life. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. So instead of looking at you and forgetting what you look like, verse 25, the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. That's a lot. Because how many of you on a daily basis think about the law of God in that manner? That it's a law of liberty. What's the number one objection from all your pagan friends? (laughs) God doesn't let me do anything fun. (laughs) Christianity is all about a bunch of stuff that I can't do. Oh, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. What's James's first thing? Live joyfully. How do we live joyfully? By having a law of liberty. Again, remember, Christian, we did this when we walked through the totality of Exodus. When the laws come on Sinai, they come for what kind of people? A redeemed people seeking to be sanctified, a people who have been saved, who now need to know what it means to be saved. When James is writing this, how much New Testament exists? Just out of curiosity. Anybody been paying attention? 44 to 48 AD, first book of the New Testament written. So we know about Christ. The apostles are preaching, they're proclaiming. But the closest we can come to a date for actually writing of the Gospels is Matthew in the, in the 50s. The closest we can guess would be Matthew in the mid to late 50s. 15 years after this. Paul's not going to write his first letter, to, which is the letter to the Galatians, for another, um, if you go 44, another seven years. If you go 48, another three years. So when he's talking about law, do we have the expositions of Paul in Galatians? Do we have the rundown of Peter being a new people? No. When James is talking about the law of liberty, he's talking about what? He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the freedom that the law of God provides the people of God because it shows them that there are now no doubts. There are now no problems. You know what wisdom looks like. You know what forsaking and putting to death sin looks like. You know how you are to walk. This is why Paul can tell you things like Romans 12. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And I know we've used that a bunch of weeks in a row, but that's what James is putting flesh on. This is what Peter has talked about, that I urge you as aliens, strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, 
you are going to have some problems if you try to take what I have just said and run straight to the Old Testament and design your life. What would be your first problem? You got a king? <laughs> you got a temple? You got a tabernacle? You got a priest? No, see, you're going to have some issues. This is what the New Testament is helping you to put flesh on. Read Galatians. It will do you good. It will help you see the distinctions and what the things of the Old Testament are pointing to and how they are fulfilled in Christ. Read your Gospels. It will do you good. It will show you the fulfillments, especially John. We talked about this, where Jesus talking about the fulfillments of the festivals, why they are meant to point to him and be satisfied in him. Read things like 1 Corinthians or Colossians 3. How do you live your life, Christian? How much of your life is an offering unto God? All of it. And if you do this, you will have disagreements with people about how you live out the righteousness of God and how they live out the righteousness of God. Romans 14 helps you with this. 1 Corinthians, I can't remember exactly. Was it 13 somewhere in that? No, it's not for, somewhere in Corinthians. Read Corinthians. It will do you good. Helps you to put flesh on some of these things. You know what the baseline comes down to? Christians are trying to live in a world where they are putting their sin to death. If they are not, do you know what they are not? Christians. James is trying to encourage you on how to do that. So am I. First step. I don't care what you do. I care why you do it. If your life is lived as an offering unto God, then you will evaluate the things of your life. You will question the decisions you will make, and you will look at your life with a long lens in view. What was our opening verse? Slow to speak. Quick to hear. Playing the long game, trusting in who? God. His kingdom. His work. Not our wisdom. His wisdom. His commands. With that understanding, you will look at your life and go, that needs to stay, that needs to go, that needs to go, but I don't know how this needs to go. So we work on it. And we figure out, how do I live my life not indulging in my sin, but indulging in the grace and mercy of God by trusting in who he is and what he has done? Because again, the gospel message is a message of empowerment, not just initiation. It is a reminder that when I find sin... I can do the hard work of killing it, because why? Because Christ has already overcome. I am merely bringing into this world what he has done on high. And I can do these things in the wisdom of God by his mercies and grace, because he is good and his work accomplishes all these things. But Christian, it starts with leaning into who? God and his grace. Taking up your cross daily. Not just for your redemption, but for your sanctification. Walking, how you talk to your neighbors, how you deal with your job, how you make decisions about what news program you want to get your information from, how you feel about what goes on in Ukraine or what other country that's happening next week. Because you know what? If the last two years have taught you nothing, <laughs> it should have taught you at least this. When this crisis is over, what's going to happen? There's going to be another one. And how will you deal with it? with the grace and mercy provided by God through the Holy Spirit then, because you'll have the strength to deal with it when it comes, and not one second before. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because that's how he works in this world. So remember, you have been saved. And you are working out that salvation here and now with fear and trembling, and you are trusting in him to accomplish all things, and you are walking faithfully, trying to figure out, how do I live unto God in this moment? Do that. The wisdom of God will be applied. 
The dumb things that you're not supposed to do will be set aside, and you will be able to make sense of how James's encouragement and commands to walk in holiness line up with the grace and mercy poured out by God, because that has been the message to God for all time for all of his people. You do this because of what God has accomplished, not so that God will move. In other words, we are sanctified not so that we will be saved, but because we have been saved. So Christian, think, evaluate, pay attention, remember who you are and why you stand there, and then live your life unto the glory of God. Let's pray.